Uh, this is Mike Shore, and you're listening to That's What She Said on the Internet. That's What She Said, episode 57, The Surplus. Wow, that is really hard. You really think you can go all day long? Well, you always left me satisfied and smiling, so... That's what she said! <laughs> Suicide doors on my 57 Chevy Roll around town like a hero I got you on my mind Just like all the time Pedal down, nowhere to go And welcome to episode 57 of That's What She Said, a podcast about the Emmy Award-winning NBC show, The Office. As always, I'm your human resources coordinator, Matt Summer, and this week we're going to be taking an in-depth and spoiler-filled look at the ninth episode of season five, entitled The Surplus, which originally aired Thursday, December 4th, 2008. He explained this to me like I'm a five-year-old. Michael has a $4,300 surplus to spend and one day to spend it. Will it be Team Copier, Team Chairs, or Team Burlington Coat Factory for the win? Pam plays dirty, Jim finds his cojones, Dwandy Jill a journey to Shrewd Farms, and Michael finds out what it's like to be the most popular guy in the office. At least for an hour or two. Lots to discuss, lots to talk about, let's head on over to the water cooler. It's a real shame, because studies have shown that more information gets passed through water cooler gossip than through official memos, which puts me at a disadvantage, because I bring my own water to work. Why'd you do this? I didn't do it. Oh, the water cooler was brought over here for maintenance. So what do you guys hear? What's the scuttlebutt? And joining me at the water cooler again this week is our dear friend, our traveling salesman, our assistant to the regional manager, Kevin Crossman. And Kevin, I just have one thing to say to you. You are the silent killer. (laughs) Well, thanks, Matt. Good to be here as always. And as a public service for all of our residents and listeners of Pennsylvania closed societies, I will now only speak in German for the remainder of the podcast. (laughs) All right, bitte. So anyway, Kevin, it's been a while, a couple of weeks. How how was your uh, debauched weekend of uh, sin in Las Vegas for Thanksgiving, my friend? Oh, the wife and I had a great time in Las Vegas. Uh, saw some shows, did some shopping. We even ran into a little I Love Jim paper pad that we uh, were looking at. I sent you some pictures of that. Uh, lots of fun, lots of good office goodies we saw over at uh, Urban Outfitters. Well, you know what they say, what uh, what happens in Vegas with Jim stays in Vegas. So <laughs> Let's keep that to yourself. Well, I've spent a more homey Thanksgiving with my immediate family, my parents, my brother, and three of my cousins, and we spent about three and a half hours playing Rock Band 2, so good times were had by all, I have to say. Uh, So we pushed out the last episode of Frame Toby on that uh, Sunday before the producer's cut came out, Kevin, so uh, have you since then watched the producer's cut of Frame Toby? Yes, I have, and I think that uh, the producer's cut was basically what we kind of expected. Uh, they added in a whole bunch more of the plot line with Pam and more about the microwave. I think it was a better cut of the episode, although I still think that there were some flaws in the episode that could have been, they could have rearranged the whole Michael discovering Toby thing uh, for better effect if they'd done things differently. But as a whole, the producer's cut is a better cut of the episode, I have to say. Well, I sort of like that episode anyway, but I agree that it is a better episode with the stuff than without it. I was a little disappointed that it was not any longer than it was. It was only about four minutes longer than the regular cut, 
and most of it was just the two deleted scenes reinserted. Mm-hmm. There was a few other little one-liners here and there, but um, nothing major, no really massive like reconstruction of the uh, episode. I guess if you know if if you sort of liked it, you liked it still. If you were on the fence, maybe you got pushed over one way or the other. And if you really hated it, uh, you probably didn't change your mind at all. So, well, that brings us to this week, Kevin. Our episode this week, the surplus. And um, I got to say, for me, as usual, perhaps a lot. Of, there were some good moments, some things I really enjoyed about the episode. Some other stuff that I was a little lukewarm about. And I got to say this, I, I'm just the whole Andy Dwight Angela thing. I'm just getting. It's just not doing much for me. I got to say, it's kind of throwing me off. It keeps going back and forth, and then this week again, we got another reversal, and then another reversal at the end. So I mean, it's just like it's like a ping pong match, going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And uh, I don't know. I want to see this thing resolved. I don't know. It's really weird. I haven't exactly been the biggest fan of this storyline, but for whatever reason, all of the things worked for me in this episode. All the ridiculous, stupid humor of Andy <laughs> stepping in the manure, uh, the, even the twist, uh, I did not see coming. I, I bet you probably did, and that's maybe why you didn't enjoy it. You So you, did, you didn't have any clue that it was going to turn out that Dwight had arranged this fake marriage? Nope. Oh, I, well, I guess you're right then. That is maybe why I didn't like it, because I thought I could smell it a mile away. No pun intended. Um, <laughs> it seemed it seemed really obvious that that was what he was trying to do. The thing that's weird, I guess the reason why I'm feeling the way I am with this, that it's just kind of going back and forth, is that, okay, he, he does this thing, again, another grand gesture to supposedly try to win her back, but he's so, again, just like with the cat, he's so wrong about what she wants that it's, they're not meant, I don't know, we talked about this before, that they're just so incompatible, it seems like, uh, yet it keeps coming back, and she even says, you know, I made the wrong choice with Andy, uh, I, you know, I want to get back with you, and then, of course, he blows it by revealing this whole fake marriage scheme, and then she just ridiculously goes back and, and gives Andy the big tuna French kiss at the end of the episode, which is done, I'm assuming, again, just out of spite, for Dwight it has nothing to do with Andy. I just I, I I was not a huge fan of him third season. Kind of wondered what he was up to fourth season. I, this season I'm just feeling sorry for the guy. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. I I don't disagree that it's been a little bit of a ping pong match, like you said. But I think that they are meant for each other. The problem is just that Dwight is a little too anxious and he wants to close the deal and accelerate things at all costs instead of taking a little bit slower. You know, he would have had her if he hadn't done the stupid bonehead wedding thing so it's his own fault i guess fault well, i guess i mean it sort of pulled a michael scott right snatching defeat from the jaws of victory yeah pretty much but that's the thing i mean it's just like with the cat you know he thought he was doing some great thing for her uh, and of course he totally read the situation the wrong way and this is the same thing she's always dreamed of this wedding and all this stuff and all this planning and to have some secret ceremony where no one is invited and nothing's going on is just you know, and to totally trick her into doing it. Oh, by the way, yes, you've secretly uh, agreed to marry me. And, uh, I mean, I don't know. Well, clearly not Dwight's smartest move, that's for sure. Well, that uh, that is true. I, I think his heart is in the right place, though. He, he's, he wants to be with her at any cost, and sometimes his methods, you know, aren't exactly well thought out. But I think his, he means well. He wants to make her happy. All right, well, let's get back to the uh, the main plot of the show Really only two plots this week, as far as I could tell. Um, the office plot and then the Dwight, Andy, and Angela stuff. 
And you could maybe break it down into the Jim-Pam conflict again, but um, I didn't think there was enough meat there really to separate that from the main plot no, line. No. So here, of course, we have you, you and I have often complained about and wanted more real-life office situations. So we definitely had a real-life down-to-earth office episode this week as far as that whole surplus thing goes. I agree with you. This is the kind of plot line people have been clamoring for. So now we're talking about whether it, you know, the execution is, is on par or not. And i got to say, I know you probably disagree with me, but I am totally falling in love with the new Pam. I know this probably is not a popular opinion, but <laughs> I love the more sort of Pam who is, is taking control of her life in, in ways that she never did before in the old days when people would walk all over her, uh, especially back in the early episodes. It was just beat up on Pam, beat up on Pam. Today she's taking control. She's trying to lead the revolt to get the chairs, and damn it, She'll get the chairs at any cost, no matter what she has to do. Well, almost anything to do. Well, that's an interesting point that you bring that up, because quite frankly, the blog page is rather divided among uh, what people think of Fancy New Beasley this year. I'm on the fence, because i got to say that this is sort of two weeks in a row now. Frame Toby and this episode, The Surplus, where she's sort of actually unpleasant. And I guess it depends on how you take it. If you take it as being, oh, she's asserting herself and she's a strong woman on the one hand. On the other hand, she's being really kind of uh, abrasive, really sort of uh, confrontational. She's uh, going after the man that she supposedly loves over some chairs. She's, uh, she's kind of out there. And I have some, and like I said, some of the people on the blog have been commenting about this. That they're just really, they're really losing their connection with the character. And I have to say a little bit that I am as well. I'm not, I'm not sympathizing with her like I used to. I definitely, it's not the same feeling. Now, whether that's my inability to appreciate a strong woman or something, I don't know, Kevin, but uh, <laughs> I, I was a little disappointed. I got to say, I was a little disappointed that Pam stooped to using her sexuality to win some chairs. Well, I think that what she was trying to do is use her best assets. And, and Jim and Oscar, when he, they took Michael out to lunch, they were trying to pump him up. And she was pumping Michael up in a different way that only yeah, she could. Yeah, that's what she said. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> And it's not like she was rubbing his ass or anything like that. And she, you know, she was complimenting him. She was going all out. She was, she was doing the same thing everyone else was doing. You know, the hey, here's the boss. He's so great. And she was just a little bit more overt from it because of her position leading the revolt on the chairs. And if she had done her homework, she figured out who was in favor of getting new chairs. So she was making those lines drawn. And you know, I don't she know. saved the day. It was very overtly sexual. All of her comments, hot tie guy, hey, nice, great ass, hey, don't take it away from me, all that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I don't know. Is it really worth it at the end of the day to get that chair? I mean, you could go down to Office Depot and buy one for 100 bucks and keep your dignity. Well, if you want a good chair, sometimes <laughs> you have to do what you need to do. I, I suppose. I'm the fence there about Pam's character and where she's going with it this season. I think that I'd, I would like to see her mellow out. Maybe it's just that newfound assertiveness that once... You know, it's sort of like new converts to something that when they first find something out, they find a new religion or they find a new hobby or something, they're just like super into it and really, uh, you know, in your face about it. And maybe well, that's what's going on here. I don't know. The one thing I would say about the end of this episode is that you might argue, as you have, that she's gone a little too far and Jim comes back and puts her down a little bit, <laughs> a little peg uh, to understand, okay, don't get too cocky. And I think that, that was just the right tone. It wasn't too adversarial, I don't think. Uh, but he was bringing her back down to earth a little bit. I think that was a great way to end it. 
Yeah, I mean, I like that Capper, definitely. But, you know, just think about some of the other stuff, too. Just the, she takes his tiramisu and throws it in the garbage can. Again, more controversy with the couple. And I guess it's more fun. Maybe it's more fun to have them at odds with each other. It just seems like, God, every week, every week they're at odds with each other. Couldn't they yeah. be on the same side just for once? Well, no, there's no doubt it would be good to see them on the same side. But at the same point, I think that they were both kind of smiling pretty much throughout the whole conflict situation. Well, yeah, that p- perhaps, but I don't know. Uh, Pam's a little scary. I'm not sure if she was just playing around or not, but um, let's get into talking about, though, the other stuff, though. I, I did really like the whole Michael's sort of fantasy day aspect of this episode. He was like, I mean, this is literally like the best day of his life, I think, and until the whole uh, Burlington Coat Factory PETA protester Whatever, whatever the hell that was all about. But, um, you know, it was just his dream come true. He's invited out to lunch. Uh, everyone's laughing at his jokes. They're high-fiving him, you know, Oscar. <laughs> when they come back to lunch, Oscar's like, oh, good food with good friends. And, you know, all this <laughs> is so ridiculous. And even though it's total bullshit, I mean, it was just fun for me to see everyone in the office kind of being together and kind of having fun with each other. I agree. I, I, that was a very enjoyable to watch. I, there were lots of little funny parts, too. When he, The one scene where he's walking by with the hot chocolate and everyone's being nice to him and then Toby doesn't say anything to him because Toby's <laughs> not being nice to him. So little parts like that were really funny. And I did also like the way they used Hank in this episode, just a, another sort of newer kind of character. And then Michael even kind of took charge there at the end with that scene with Hank. I thought that was a great Michael Scott moment as well. <laughs> Yeah, that Hank thing was a little random. Um, let me ask you a question. Is Hank becoming the new Daryl? He might be. I don't know. I think, Like I said in previous episodes, I think they need to introduce some new characters and kind of shake up the dynamic a little bit. And Daryl has been that character over the past two seasons, and now with Hank, he's showing up a little bit more frequently. And I think it was used very effectively in this episode. Well, I like my favorite part of that scene was Michael just... <laughs> Getting frustrated with him and just telling him to get lost. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know? mm, well, I don't know. On the other hand, I'll no, get out. <laughs> so it was a great capper on that, too. So I really like that part of the episode. Not a huge fan of the Andy, Angela, Dwight stuff, but the main office plot did elevate this up uh, a little bit more above, I think, last week's episode for me, and I know you really, really enjoyed this one a lot. Yes. Well, fair enough. Now let's talk about the credits for the episode here. Of course, this is written by uh, the dynamic duo of Lee Eisenberg and Gene Stupnitsky, who have been around since the beginning, the two Vance refrigerator guys that sold Michael the fake pot last week. They've written 11 total episodes, including the surplus, uh, weight loss from this season, job fair from last year. I know that wasn't a big favorite for a lot of people. Uh, Dinner party and women's appreciation to name but five. Some of my, they've written some of my favorites and some of uh, my not favorites, sort of just like the Mindy Kaling episode last week. So, mm-hmm. um, Also, the episode was directed by Paul Feig, who has done ten episodes in the director's chair, including next week's Moroccan Christmas. Uh, he did Surplus, did Weight Loss, did Goodbye Toby, one of our all-time favorites, and also Dinner Party from last season so we're in good hands with uh, some veterans on the show i agree this is the a team both on the writing and the directing side and i think that's one of the reasons why i enjoyed this episode 
All right, well, let's go ahead and get into the Michael plot line here. Um, so what is the deal? Well, Oscar has some interesting news for Michael in the cold open this week. Why don't you explain this to me like I am an eight-year-old? All right, well, this is the overall budget for this fiscal year. You can see clearly on this page that we have a surplus of $4,300. Mm-hmm. Okay. Why don't you explain this to me like I'm five? Your mommy and daddy gave you $10? to open up a lemonade stand, and now you find out that it only costs you $9. Oh. So you have an extra dollar. Yeah. So you can give that dollar back to mommy and daddy, but guess what? Next summer, I'll be six. And you ask them for money, they're going to give you $9, because that's what they think it costs to run the stand. So what you want to do is spend that dollar on something now so that your parents think that it costs $10 to run the lemonade stand. So the dollar's a surplus. This is a surplus. We have to spend that $4,300 by the end of the day, or it'll be deducted from next year's budget. We should spend this money on a new copier, which we desperately need. Okay, break it down in terms of... I'm... Okay, I I think I'm getting you. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what that was about. I mean, Oscar, of course, he very patient with Michael and his little story about mommy and daddy in the lemonade stand. Uh, wonderful. Of course, you'd think he'd get a little exasperated perhaps, but he has an agenda already from the beginning. He wants that copier. So he's definitely going to make sure that Michael uh, knows the score. Well, you know, I did like Michael in this episode, but I'm growing a little tired of the completely clueless Michael who's never heard of a surplus before. I find it really hard to believe and I don't know that I love the increasing frequency of his mispronounced words. Yeah, there was two of those this episode, and I did not include them in the clips for that very reason. He had, uh, you know, here's the X axis, yeah, and the, <laughs> the ergonomic chair. <laughs> yeah, but I think the cold open is useful for people who maybe don't quite understand the whole surplus thing and why this is a big deal in a company. So. In as much as Michael becomes the fall guy for being, you know, the stupid clueless guy, I guess like it's, I guess it ends justify the means in terms of they have to kind of lay this out for the viewers to understand. So in that respect, I think it was well done and uh, well presented, and in a way that everyone understands what's what's happening and what's at stake in terms of the budget for next year. Yeah, I suppose that is true. Now we were complaining about this before that we wanted more and more cold opens to be plot related and we've been getting that this year a lot so let me ask you this are we missing any of the total non sequitur cold opens from years past as long as it's funny and interesting and setting the, the, the show up well i think i'm okay with the cold opens probably being more related to the plot instead of just a joke i feel kind of the same way about michael's stupidity i've i've always been a guy that's the big michael fan anyway so that's something that kind of uh, walking the line a little bit, but still it had to be done to set it up, maybe, as you said. That's his, you know, Oscar's big push for that copier. Uh, Michael then, you know, runs right out there, explains to everyone what's going on, that uh, he's got the surplus, and he's going to damn well, he's going to buy a copier. Uh, unfortunately, not everyone in the office is too thrilled by that reaction. Michael, new chairs. These chairs are terrible. We were supposed to get new ones last year. Okay, good suggestions. All good suggestions. Uh, let's just decide and agree upon one. I'm with Pam. Cheers. All right, so teams forming. We should really have the office's air quality tested. I mean, we have radon coming from below. We have asbestos in the ceilings. These are silent killers. You are the silent killer. Go back to the annex. 
You'll see. Michael? Yes? I've talked to Meredith, Stanley, and Jim about the chairs. I know they're with me on this. Uh, actually, I'm going to go with a cop here. What? Ever since Pam and I started dating, I just feel all weird asking her to make copies for me. So, I make my own copies. And that copier sucks. But you know what? Pam and I don't have to agree on everything. Well, I swallowed all your ideas. I'm going to digest them and see what comes out the other end. Classic ending line there. To, as far as copiers versus chairs go, I was just talking about this before. I don't know where I fall on that line. i got to say that I have a lot of copier issues at my job. We have three copy machines, Kevin. Three copy machines for 150 teachers in our school. And uh, it can be quite an issue, quite a problem. You know, hey, I'd love a nice office chair as well, but I don't know. The copier, you got to have that copier to get your job done. Uh, you know, I don't know where I would vote either on that one, although I got to say, <laughs> I think Pam's argument that everybody uses a chair is a pretty compelling one, and I got to imagine that those chairs are pretty lousy. So, in any case, I, I did really like that clip a lot, especially the part there with, with Toby. You'll and see. He, well, and then you'll <laughs> see, you barely, and I, you barely even hear that. It's so funny. Uh, you'll see. I just love that line. And, you know, Michael comes out. He's, he's trying to do the right thing. And now teams are forming. And now, uh-oh, it's back to the old Michael Scott. I can't, you know, uh, offend anybody. I have to be, make sure that I'm still everybody's friends and that they like me. I don't want to make a decision that no one will enjoy. So, Well, Kevin, uh, can I... This can is, I this is ground we've seen before, but again, I think this is this is actually what happens in real life, right? The boss has to make a decision. He knows people are going to be on one side or the other. You got to figure out what the right decision is. I like yeah, it. I guess it's true. Uh, can I put you down for a pair of team copier sweatpants? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 team chairs. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> team Pam. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the good old days of season three. Well, since you brought that up, as far as we've seen this before, let me lay the cards on the table. For this, people commented on this in the blog page, and I did notice it as well on Thursday that this is plot-wise very similar to at least one other episode. Uh, maybe is more than that, but at least one episode, at least from healthcare from season one. And I guess we can argue that well, that's a long time ago, and, and maybe this is another take on that. But it's very similar plot line where we have Michael has to make a decision. He keeps procrastinating through the day. Finally, at the end, has to make a choice. Now, I'm not saying it's exactly a carbon copy. Definitely definitely not the case. It still did have some very similar similar feeling, a little deja vu in my mind. Uh, certainly very similar. I, I can't argue with that. I think it is different enough that the, the people in the office are making more of the decision as opposed to in healthcare where it was kind of Dwight just running rampant. And because he was absent from this plot line, that felt you know, fairly different for me, but I, I don't disagree that there aren't some similarities. Man, and that just begs the question, I mean, what would have happened if he would have been in the office? To join into the fray here, I only wonder what side that he would have been on. I think maybe uh, a different side altogether, perhaps. It might have been interesting to see if Angela and Dwight were on different sides like Jim and Pam were. Now, this is a thing where it starts to turn ugly. So, of course, Jim... Uh, and Pam now are at odds. Everyone in the office, you know, Meredith and Creed, congratulate him on having the balls to uh, to stand up to Pam. Although, like I said, I mean, I don't, I can't remember a time this season when they've been on the same side of anything. So, <laughs> I'm not sure why they're too surprised about that. But anyway, uh, Pam, you know, goes in and talks to Jim in the break room and gives him a little ultimatum. Hey. Hey. So, um, I've been thinking about this whole chair copier thing and mm -hmm. 
I really think you should reconsider. Oh, Pam, I really hate that copy. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But I really think you should reconsider. Beasley, are you threatening me? Jim. Jim, Jim, Jim. I'm not threatening you. I love you. But you should know you're on very dangerous ground. All right. Okay. <laughs> That's pretty damn harsh, man. <laughs> well, it was a little... Uh, I think she took a playbook from Ryan from last week. A little... <laughs> try to suck up to the person you're trying to influence to uh, get them to change their mind on something. But, yeah, you know, I'm not saying she's not playing hardball. That's for sure. I love I you, just but I just I'm going to kill you if you don't do what I'd say. I mean, what a way to go, though. Like we said, at least we can be comforted in the fact that Jim gets uh, gives as much as he gets later on in the mm -hmm. episode. Um, now, this, like I said, this to me is one of my favorite scenes from, uh, from the show. As, as, as Michael said, teams are forming, and indeed... Pam tries to work behind the scenes to get Jim uh, on her side, and that does not go anywhere. Oscar is the big, really forceful player in this episode this week, and he steps up to uh, really, I mean, it's like psychological warfare. He hits Michael right where he knows will do the most good, most damage, perhaps, depending on your point of view. Just popping in to uh, offer him the deal of a lifetime. Remember, you were going to get a new chair, and you were going to give your old chair to me. Remember that? Yes. Well, that never happened. Michael? I don't know. I haven't decided yet. I'm just going to grab some lunch. Want to come with? Really? Absolutely. Yeah, that would be amazing. Whoa, oh, are you guys going you. to lunch? Yes. Yeah. Mind if I join? Oh, God. All right. Yeah. Let's go. Lunch ever. Woo. Let's do it. All right. Cool. Where are we going? I have no idea. So I guess that's how they're going to play this. It is on. It is so on. Now, that was a scary, scary face. I gotta no! Sexy! I love that scene. Her glaring into the camera was sexy? Yes. Come on. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, I don't know what this maybe, is saying maybe, about our psychology you know, here, Kevin. Well, you know, I've expressed my love for Jim this season. Now I'm expressing it for Pam. Maybe I'm just trying to make it a threesome or something. I don't know. <laughs> trying to... Uh, move yourself back toward the hetero side of the equation. Uh, well, I don't know. It was a, it was quite a scary, scary glance, actually, my, from my point of view. Uh, Pam is down and dirty and looks like she will rip your guts out. Uh, like I say, I, just, I love the way that they play Michael, uh, both, and then Jim, of course, jumps in to add his little extra play in there as well. Uh, best lunch ever. Michael's just yeah. so excited. I mean, it, it's so sad, really, if you think about it. Because, I mean, when has anyone ever invited him to lunch? <laughs> and, and much less two people. Uh, this has got to be the day of his life. While they're at the restaurant, you know, whatever. I'm assuming that they just, <laughs> they're hanging on his every word. They're laughing at every a little anecdote and every story. Uh, I don't have this on the clip, but I love that when they come back, they're just laughing their asses off. They just, everyone seems like they're having a great time. You know, Michael is just out of breath, dying, laughing so hard. Everyone's laughing. Oscar, you know, even gives him the, oh, man, this is great lunch with great friends. Right. <laughs> you know, he's just lying his ass off. It's, it, I mean, on the one hand, it's kind of sad, but Michael is so happy about this whole thing that, uh, you know, all is forgiven. This is literally the best day of his life. Well, and I love, too, when they come back and Jim tries to give Pam a little peace offering with the tiramisu. And she throws it right in the garbage. I think that that was a great way for her to keep her end of the bargain and say, no, 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 you're not going to get out of it this easy. And she's serious about getting that chair. So that I, I like harsh, that moment. Man. 
that is a good solid you know five six dollar dessert right in the garbage can but it does not go to waste i guess it it does not. <laughs> that is even more scary that is even more baffling to think about that <laughs> because if you look at the clip she she opens the box and dumps the cake out into the garbage can not yes. just doesn't just throw the box in the garbage can and it's not no. like you know, it's not like a Costanza where it's on the top of a magazine or something, and <laughs> and he felt he could eat the, you know, the eclair. I, it, I, it went side side down. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> now this is where I guess, depending on your point of view, and I, I didn't really hear from any women on this issue, so maybe I'm just off. You know, my my PC roots or something are are showing here, Kevin. But Pam lays down the gauntlet there. It, you know, it, it's so on, and as we said before. Her only weapon against Michael, apparently, is her burgeoning sexuality. So she dabs on the lipstick, tussles the hair, and is ready for battle. Oh, that must have been so fun. It was fun. We had a good time. Hey, have I told you you look really nice today? Oh, thank you. Yeah, is that a new tie? No, I got it at TJ Maxx, $4. That is amazing! You think that's good? Check out these pants. $9. Boys department. No. Look at the ass. Check out the ad. No Look at that. way! Oh, so I guess Oscar and Jim were talking your ear off about the new copier, huh? Yes, they were. Yeah. They were. Here's what I was thinking. Everyone sits on a chair every day, mm-hmm. but not everyone sits on a copier. Or even uses the copier every day. Yeah. Yeah, right? Very valid. All right. See you later. See ya. Hot tie guy. <laughs> well. Man, I... <laughs> I don't know. What do you think? Does she sell herself out? Does she sell her soul for a chair? Like I said earlier, I think she's just trying to use what she has. The, the one thing I would say is that I, the one thing that was in that deleted scene from Frame Toby that I think was really interesting was the scene early in the episode where Michael talks to Dwight and to Pam about the whole Toby's back. Why didn't you tell me? It's your fault. And I think that's because he thinks of those two as his closest allies in the office. So in this respect, Pam coming in to kind of kiss his ass a little bit and talk to him is maybe not the kind of unusual ruse that it might seem from, say, Oscar. So I think in that respect, she does have this rapport with Michael that maybe some of the other people in the office don't have. So I guess in that respect, I would say she's probably not whoring herself quite the same way. (laughs) Well, maybe. I I guess, see, this is the thing that's funny about this scene, I guess, is that Michael, I, I think he would believe it from anybody. That's the thing. I think that he is so uh, egocentric almost in his appearance and everything else that he would he would not be surprised if anyone complimented him or came up and said nice things to him. I don't think. And I guess maybe, you know, Pam, yeah, she's using her sexuality uh, as a weapon here, but she's also, just like with Oscar and Jim, she's exploiting Michael's, you know, psychology, his desperate need for compliments or <laughs> human interaction of another sort, especially since uh, Holly left. I actually felt, this is the thing that was kind of weird, too, is Pam's behavior is, is kind of funny because she is so obviously faking being nice to him, but it, it felt really like sort of a Holly scene almost, and which is kind of a weird sort of conflict, I guess, because we had that really serious, nice, very heartfelt, I like you, Michael, kind of stuff. And then now we have this really fake, I like you, Michael, kind of stuff. And it's, I don't know, I, I guess maybe I'm just missing that uh, those Holly scenes. Well, there's no doubt about that. But I think 
I don't know that Pam is any less disingenuous than, say, Oscar would be in this episode. No, I, I don't disagree. They're all, they all, you know, are faking it every minute of it. That's part of the sad thing, I guess. And I'm glad that Michael didn't come to realize that they were all faking. That would have been a really, <laughs> a really sad, sad scene. So I'm glad that they left him oblivious to that so he could still kind of savor this day in his mind maybe uh you know dear diary <laughs> best Thanks day ever <laughs> there it is the lines are drawn and that leads into like i said we talked about this before one of the best scenes from the episode here where uh michael is basically just the man of the hour michael i got you a hot chocolate i hope that's okay oh thank you my dear wait michael let me open the door for you oh hell chivalry is not dead after all there he is there he is hello 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 good to see you good to see you mm. yeah yeah there's that ass hey hey yeah yeah. Uh, yeah, uh. yeah oh don't take it away <laughs> oh ah, i almost choked hey, don't take it away kevin come on i heard a little bit of evan baxter from evan almighty in that scene uh, being sort of a fan of that movie, but uh, <laughs> Steve Carell took it a little close to the edge there. But yeah, I, I love that scene, I, especially the the part there with Toby, where he's the one guy who doesn't say anything. Yeah, just I don't know. Every like I said, he, Michael's so happy, just like the man of the hour going down there and out. Hey, Stanley, no, you're the man. Great, uh, great day for Michael. Problem is, everyone's being nice to him, of course, but he doesn't want to disappoint anyone. He has to make a choice, and whatever choice he makes, he knows he's going to piss off at least half the office, and he's enjoyed this attention. So he literally cannot make the choice and calls on, well, he calls on a proxy to make that decision for him. Did somebody call Hank? Hank, thank God you're here. The office is at a crossroads. I need your sage advice. And everyone, whatever Hank decides, that is the decision. That will resolve this issue. Well, what are we talking about? Okay. Here's the thing. Some people want to use the surplus to buy a new copier. Other people are complaining about the chairs. Is that the copier? It is, yes. Hmm. What? I was just thinking. Let me see a chair. Okay. You can try mine. Oh, here we go. On the one hand, this copier is very old. You should see some of the new copiers they have. You would not believe what they do. So, the copier. Well, let me finish. All right, yes. Now, the chairs. Very weak chairs. I could not sit all day in this chair. Well, what should I do? Let me see the copier again. All right, get out. Get out. <laughs> so, I mean, I love that scene. Like I said before, I love the ending of that scene. And, you know, the thing is weird. Like, once Michael brings Hank up here, bafflingly enough why he would and why he all of a sudden thinks he has sage advice to give him. I don't know where that ever came from, but maybe it's just desperation talking. Um, he brings him up here. He he literally puts all all the decision-making power in Hank's hands. So everyone in the office then shifts over to Hank. Well, the thing I liked about that was that everyone everyone bought, completely bought that premise. Okay, Hank will decide, and they were they were totally okay with it. No one was protesting, and even Hank seemed to understand that he was being put on the spot. But he was relishing his idea, so he wanted to make a very thoughtful decision. Unfortunately, it took him a t- little too long to come up <laughs> with that decision. Why did he get upset about that, though? I mean, it, as long as he's not making the decision, what does he care? Was it just the fact that? Uh, it was taking too long, or that it was he was losing everyone's attention. He was taking too damn long. Make a decision. Uh, yeah, but he's been struggling with this for hours, and what does he care if it takes another <laughs> few minutes for this guy to make a choice? Well, 
don't know. There's only so, so long in each segment of The Office before the commercial comes. I know. So. You had to end on that great line. <laughs> so You got to do what you got to do. All right. So Hank is out. He doesn't make the, you know, he can't make the call. So Michael puts in another call to our favorite guy at corporate. And Kevin, I, I know I keep promising this every week. I'm going to stop complaining about this and I'm going to stop beating this eight-week-old dead horse. But, yeah, he does it again. He calls David Wallace. I'm calling because um, we have a stupid budget surplus, and people, everybody wants something different. You want me to weigh in on a minor budget issue? No, no, no. I want you to make the decision so I'm not the bad guy. Well, if I were you, I would just return the surplus and take the bonus. The what now? Branch managers who come in under budget get 15% of the savings. $645? I hate disappointing just one person. And I really hate disappointing everyone, but I love Burlington Coat Factory. If you go in there for $645, you are literally a king. Man, so I'm assuming that that's our paid product placement for this week's episode. Um, Can we look forward to maybe the Michael Scott line of uh, menswear at the Burlington Coat Factory? That could be. I I really like that scene for a number of reasons. Uh, The tiramisu, the, the... the, the full version in which you didn't play there. It was so he, random, though. Well, he's eating it, right? And then he, he calls again. He takes another bite. He still chokes on it. And he's going for the third one. Then he, he puts his hands up like, okay, okay, I'll stop with the tiramisu. And, of course, we talked about earlier where that tiramisu came from. Yeah. And then I thought that the, the, when he said, you are a king, I wasn't really paying attention to the clock as I was jumping back and forth between watching the show and in the uh, that's what she said, chat room. So I wasn't quite sure what time it was, and I almost thought that that was the end of the episode. Uh, you know, Obviously, prior to the show tag or something like that. I, I thought it could have ended right there, and it would have still been very satisfying. Uh, and then we still had a whole other third of the episode to go, which is great. Oh, but they didn't even do anything. They'd make a decision. How could that be satisfying? Well, it just sounded like the end of an episode. They're like these things that Michael Scott says at the end. Well, like, like he did in this episode, too. He, he wow. says something, that's the end. That's true. I, I wish they would have used that somehow as the ending line instead of that whole fur coat thing, but we'll get into that when we get to it in a little while. I, you know, I'm, my only question I guess I have is why does David Wallace keep answering the phone? <laughs> um, now that he knows Michael's 911 trick, I mean, really, what on earth compels this man? Well, maybe maybe the fact that, that the Michael's email said the word budget and set off some sort of trigger in his email filter to, oh, this might be important as the you know, CFO. Well, it's, I mean, it's <laughs> obviously the, for the structure of the episode, we need someone to tell Michael that uh, of, about the bonus, and I'm assuming then that in the last however many years that he's been the branch manager, that he's never been under budget before. Mm-hmm. This is a new occurrence, so he's not aware of the situation. And, uh, well, now that throws a whole new monkey wrench in there. And that's the thing that's funny is that, you know, he doesn't want to disappoint anyone, but he wants the money <laughs> for himself. And so he's got, you know, he's got to use all of his brain power to, uh, to try to figure out a plan, trick him, and get that money. And unfortunately, it does not go quite as well as he had hoped. Attention, everyone. I have made my decision. We do not need a new copier. We do not need new chairs. I think we're spoiled because we don't appreciate the things that we have. You think kids in Africa have chairs? No. They sit in big piles of garbage. Do you think they have copiers? They don't have copiers. They don't even have paper. Do you know? Do I know what? I think you know. No. Know what? Yeah, know what? Does anyone happen to know what 50% of 4300 is? $645. 
Michael's a genius. Right. Why did you say dollars? Because that is how my mind works. Everyone, Michael is returning the surplus so he can keep 15% as a bonus. Wait, what? You're going to give yourself a bonus of $645 instead of getting the entire office something it really needs. I don't need $645. I already have $645, more or less. You're going to get us this a copy of that. Stupid. Then Four this chairs. is so, so stupid. And, God, that's my phone. I didn't hear a phone. To be really. continued. You know, I think it's got to be the, to me, that's the line of the episode in there. Michael's a genius. <laughs> and the funny thing is that Michael says, right. <laughs> right after that, he agrees with them. I did like Oscar in this scene, the way he kind of uh, played that up and trapped Michael into uh, revealing what he knew. I, th- I thought that, again, this scene was just great. And a lot of little touches throughout this episode. Uh, him looking down at his watch before saying, "It's, it's uh, my phone's ringing, I thought that was great. Well, the the funny thing about this is that Everyone has been trying to, you know, they've been play, trying to play Michael the whole episode to get what they want. And Michael actually comes out and turns it around and does the same thing. He attempts mm-hmm. to play them. I mean, it's if you think about it, it's really, they, they chastise him, but he's not doing anything different than they are. You know, no. they all want, every, all three of them want their own thing that they want. And Oscar's just at fault because he knew and he didn't tell him quite clearly you know he didn't give him the option to uh, to keep the bonus and so he's just as guilty as michael for withholding that information so uh all in all you know everyone <laughs> everyone is screwing everyone else and unfortunately he said michael gets caught and he doesn't have the balls to make the unpopular decision i guess now that everyone knows about it anyway um but just think though i could have bought another ipod for the santa swap next week <laughs> You know, a lot of people are talking about how much would these chairs cost, but with 20 or so chairs, you could easily spend 4300 if you bought real good office chairs. So I think that that's uh, fair and reasonable. Well, I was going to ask you, did you do your due diligence for us this week and see how much this stuff cost? Did I didn't price it up. It, 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 20 chairs for 4300 is 215 a piece, and you could easily spend that much well, in did office you, Did you price uh, copiers for us? I did not. Hmm. I don't know, Kevin. Pretty sloppy. Yeah, we'll talk about my sloppy fact-checking <laughs> later in the email segment. All right, well, so, I mean, there's the conflict. Nothing is resolved. Michael tried to get that one up on everyone and, uh, you know, <laughs> makes them feel bad the whole They sit on garbage. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how inaccurate that is, to tell you the truth. But uh, <laughs> in any case, well, that's the thing. Now, Michael actually gets smart a little bit, no pun intended, where he... Has everyone in the office in his face, uh, you know, what are you going to decide, what are you going to decide, what are you going to decide, and he throws it back around, back to them. So what's going to be? Michael, you have to make a decision. The day is almost done. Let me just say, you've been promising me this chair since the day you hired me. You are a smart guy. I know you'll do the right thing. (sighs) Why don't you guys deal with it? I am going to get up, and I'm going to be out in the common area, but you need to decide. Otherwise, I'm taking the bonus. It is a classic management tactic. You have two sides, a deadline. You know that neither of them are going to concede. What you do is you put them in a room and you just, hey. Hey. Hey, we're going with the chairs. What? I just figured I'd rather have new chairs than nothing at all. Thanks, Michael. Good work. I'm proud of you. Mother, what did we learn this week? One, thanks to me, my team is much, much faster at coming to decisions than I thought they would be. Number two... Never buy a fur coat with a credit card until you absolutely have the money to pay for it. And three, 
you should know that some people think it's cool to throw buckets of fake blood on you as you were walking out of Burlington Coat Factory. I don't even know what to make of that. Let's just start with the beginning. I mean, Michael thinks he's being clever, and it seems like a really good idea. Unfortunately, <laughs> neither of them wanted him to win in any way, so I guess he kind of gave it away. Now, what was it with him? There's a little bit of business of him sitting in the break room, like, pouring sugar into a Coke. It's a Diet Coke. <laughs> I was like, what? There's some weird, again, some kind of strange business, and then his whole philosophy. You know, this is weird. This is, the ending scene here with Michael is, to me, it felt really weird and kind of out of place. Um, he's sitting there in a man fur, you know, mm-hmm. David Putty man fur, and <laughs> he, I mean, apparently, when did he go out and buy this? He only heard about it at, like, noon or, or whatever, that he had the the money, so did he go out on his lunch break and buy this man fur and, and then have it in his trunk or something all day? I mean... Well, you know, he does say we learned something this week, so maybe that was a different day after he... Yeah, but why would know, he have bought the thing? He says don't buy something yeah. unless you have the money in your hand. Why, I mean... Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, maybe he must have just gone out and gotten it, I guess. <laughs> don't think too hard about these things. It's Michael Scott after Well, all. and then that's the other thing, too. I mean, I, I don't know about you, Kevin, but uh, in small-town Midwestern America, not too many... Heat of protesters outside the Burlington Coat Factory. Well, it seems Town Mall is a hotbed of fur buying activity, so maybe in Scranton it's a different kind of story. Well, so, I don't but yeah, although it's, it's just weird because who buys fur any, anymore, right? The, yeah. I mean, that's kind of and fake, for six hundred dollars, I mean, what kind of fur did he get? That being said, I did like that last scene. I did like it a lot. Uh, he explained things and just kind of funny, and then. The, the reveal, we could kind of see it coming, but I still thought it was pretty funny to see all the blood on there. I just thought that was a weird gag to throw out of nowhere because it just it felt so odd compared to the rest of the episode, especially the whole blood on the fur thing in uh, whatever. But we can argue about that, the timeline and everything else. It didn't really do it for me. Let's say, I kind of wish that other line would have just been the capper that you mentioned before about, you know, oh, I wish I would have been able to go in there and buy something because you walk in there and, you know, you're literally a king. In any case, let's finish it off here then. Jim, you know, Pam got her way, got her chairs, and uh, Jim then comes back and ends the episode getting a little bit of revenge. Truth. Yeah, I guess, since I won. You did win. You did win. Anyway, I'm going to need three copies of each of these stapled and collated. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> I'm going to need four. So congratulations, Mr. Halpert. Well played, Mr. Halpert. Well played. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Evil genius. All right, well, so ends the good stuff in the episode, according to me anyway. Let's get on to the Dwight and Andy and Angela plotline. Now, we've been seeing this, of course, for the last few weeks, this whole uh, Dwight Schrute's going to be their wedding planner, and they're going to have the wedding on Schrute Farms. Uh, His antagonism here in this early part of the scene, I guess... You could take it a couple different ways as far as that he's just kind of being uh, argumentative just to sort of slow down the wedding or to kind of throw a monkey wrench into the wedding. Um, But then you watch the deleted scene, and then maybe it's more of the fact that he's just incompetent at being a wedding planner. Or Mm -hmm. or maybe both. I don't know. But um, in any case, he uh, is not really meeting the needs of the young couple. Dwight, I'm a little concerned about some of these directions to Shrewd Farms. Yeah, do tell. I mean, like, 156 paces from the light red mailbox, make a left. Mm-hmm. Walk until you hear the beehive. 
How could it be more clear? I think Andy makes an excellent point. Oh, okay. But my biggest concern is that there's only one bathroom. We'll dig a trench. As long as it's downhill from the well, we should be fine. We're getting married at Shrewd Farms no matter what. I have looked at 12 venues. I have lost eight deposits, and I've seen Angela naked zero times. I am not losing another deposit. <laughs> so poor old Andy, he's in it for the long haul here. I don't know. I, I, like, I did like that. i got to admit it, as much as I wasn't a huge fan of this scene, I liked that opening line there about, you know, turn right when you hear the beehive. Yeah, I, I did think this was kind of funny. I, I, I agree with you, though, that maybe it's incompetence to explain Dwight's situation, because who really measures things in paces? Come on. <laughs> but there were lots of funny things in here. You know, he's going to put the stumps out, and, you know, then the, the, the rant there from Andy was great. I loved it. And I even liked his line, let's three-way this situation. I thought that was kind of funny. and Kind of uh, an undercurrent of the whole plot this entire season has been this three-way. So I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, I figured you'd like that line. That was very, again, sort of similar to that one last uh, week about uh, my lady and I don't have any secrets, you know, kind of uh, throwing that in your face <laughs> a little bit there. The whole, uh, I don't know. He is the peacemaker, and that's the thing that's kind of funny about this, I guess, because of his refusal to lose that deposit, he is going to make sure that everything goes smoothly, and it's just Dwight and Angela that end up fighting with each other. Um, he's the peacemaker there, so you know everything, uh, whatever he can do to smooth it out, he is going to try to get that stuff smoothed out. Now, once they arrive at the farms again, things just not going quite exactly as Angela had planned. This is where you'll have your receiving line. Of course, we'll clear out all the livestock and hay and such. Mmm. 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 What's that smell? You're going to need to be more specific. Manure. Get rid of it. Manure it covers up the smell of the slaughterhouse. Have you made a decision on the butter sculpture? I would like cat. Cats don't make butter. I would like a cow butter sculpture of a cat. It doesn't make any sense. Just I am telling you. I want a butter cow. sculpture of a cat. Or sheep. Cow. What is this? Right? We're all on the same team. Is it... Yeah. Why is that in the kitchen? <laughs> now, I know you said you liked that scene. That was, I mean, we earlier when they're in the barn, when they're looking at Andy's steps in the cow plop, and, okay, that's, it makes sense. And then <laughs> he steps in a cow plop in the kitchen, which is absolutely just a ridiculous, <laughs> I'm laughing at this now saying it, so maybe whatever, it works. But, I mean, <laughs> that's such a ridiculous thing. Well, I, I did. I, this is the thing I really liked was the, the whole Dwight so confident about the whole situation. Well, well of course we'll clear this out and the hay and such. And I just <laughs> I really liked that kind of Dwight. He was he's, it's a different kind of cocky from Dwight, and maybe because he knew where all this whole day was heading. But I think that this episode and this plotline progressed very well because we had the the very meager barn uh, that still really smelled. They had the manure on the ground. And then, of course, he's setting this up for the next barn after that. Um, and, again, I, the stepping in poop, right? I mean, it's not exactly <laughs> high That's humor here. But, exactly. But, but I, for some reason, I just really liked it. Uh, I don't know what that says about you. <laughs> or it says about me, whatever. But uh, very bizarre, uh, really kind of off-the-wall, surreal sort of joke. And maybe that's the point that... Uh, you know, Shrewd Farms is not reality. It's uh, a little off the beaten trail, perhaps. As you said, then, after that whole fiasco and arguing back and forth, and Dwight and Angela are at each other's throats, 
Um, well, Dwight takes him to one more location, and uh, I-, I love the way he introduces this whole thing. He's like, oh, here's another place. Here's another place. It's beautiful. Hello. Uh, so, why don't we try this out and see what would happen? Give it a little test drive. What do you say? You pretend to be Angela's father. You will play Angela. And uh, I will pretend to be you. That way you can see what it looks like when you're up here. Dwight, I thought I knew what I wanted. And then being here with you and the German Mennonite minister, it just all felt right. I made a mistake picking Andy. I know you did. And that's why I have taken care of everything. What do you mean? Well, monkey, he's a real minister and said, I do. And I said, I do. And Andy wasn't signing a receipt. He was signing our marriage certificate as a witness. (laughs) What? That doesn't count. Yes, of course it does. No, it doesn't. It does in the state of Pennsylvania. (laughs) I didn't... Shroot. We're not married. Are we, uh... We leaving or what? (laughs) Another little weird-ass... A uh, little bit of humor there with uh, Cousin Moe's whipping something, a pumpkin or a ball or something at Andy's yeah. head there at the end of that scene. Now, there's Dwight, of course, as you said, you're uh, you're very confident guy in that scene, uh, just expecting her to be so overjoyed with this trick that he's pulled here. He's, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, you sure are in the state of Pennsylvania. Yeah, Mr. Schrute. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, definitely not the way to go. I don't know. Uh I gotta say though, that that barn looked great though. I mean, yeah, it was really decorated it, up nicely. It, it did look pretty nice. I mean, I'm not sure I'd leave my wife over it, but you know, <laughs> it was it was pretty good. I, you can see how Angela would have sort of warmed to Dwight in this instance, and I I like that whole scene. You you cut out a lot a lot of it. We went on pretty long, but just the whole narration of him explaining what was happening to Andy and everything else. I thought that was a really great Dwight scene as well. Yeah, it was a little weird, you know, the whole thing with the, even though he's born mere minutes away, <laughs> close society, he speaks only German. I don't know, just the whole shrewd farm stuff, like I said, it's just, they're building this up to the, it's such a, it's just, it's not reality. It's this weird-ass Twin Peaks sort of crazy universe out there where anything goes, I guess. The, the one thing I would note that uh, fans of The Office know that once a year, every year, they throw out one episode where they pretend that it's actually Scranton, Pennsylvania in the wintertime, and they put fake snow out so they pretend <laughs> that it isn't really Los Angeles. And this is our yearly episode. Uh, let's celebrate the fake snow on the ground at your farms. Well, I'm sure it's going to be fake snow next week for the Christmas episode. I, I actually missed it. I didn't see anything Christmassy about this episode except in the deleted scene uh, Dwight gets locked outside, and then he fakes like it's cold. <laughs> that was the only thing that I saw this week, so I have to go back and rewatch that again. I think that they were thinking it was actually cold out there. All right, well, so the ending then of the scene there, Andy totally oblivious to what's gone on. Angela, uh, like we said, ping-ponging back and forth. Oh, Dwight, I made a mistake. Oh, Dwight, you're an idiot. Oh, now I love Andy again. Well, she doesn't love him, of course. She just goes with him out of spite to punish Dwight. Uh, and, uh, well, once they get back to the office, she goes all out. Hey, Tuna, check it out. Tuna sandwich. Just like you. <laughs> what? Uh. Mm. Mm. Now I have to take care of a legal issue. Is that hot or what? 
man. So <laughs> I guess Andy got his uh, dream come true, an open mouth tuna fish French kiss. <laughs> Full body kiss there from uh, from Miss Martin in front of Dwight's vision. I think I'd rather eat the tiramisu than. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think like you said it. Uh, maybe she's used to it though with all the cats and everything. So uh, <laughs> she doesn't mind it too much. But you know that's the thing. Like I said, it, you, you got to feel bad for Andy because at some points it seems like she actually does like him and does feel sort of attracted to him. Uh, but you cannot read this as anything but just using him to get back at Dwight for what he did. All right. Uh, surprisingly enough, I guess, only one deleted scene this week. And uh, I can see really well why it was deleted. It seems very improvish. Uh, it's more with Dwight and Angela and Andy and uh, Dwight and, and Moe's. And I'm not quite sure what I think about the end part there with Dwight and, uh, and Moe's talking, whether it's a, a brilliant line or really kind of lame. But uh, I'll let you decide. I thought you were going to put the muzzle on that singing idiot. He's not a bad singer. He is pretty talented, I guess. And he went to Cornell. Yeah, well, I provide America with two of its most beloved staples, beets and paper. His family is well-connected in pockets of Connecticut. Oh, well. And his ancestors came over on the Mayflower. Oh, big whoop. Half my family came over on a U-boat. They would have destroyed the Mayflower. Listen to you. Destroyed the Mayflower? Sorry. I can't believe I said that. Angela? Hi. Wedding planning is like... Ugh. Imagine you're harvesting beets, and all they do is complain. Oh, you're pulling us out of the ground too soon. I don't like the color hoe you're using. Just shut up and be delicious. I don't think you read any of my requirements. Okay. As far as the centerpieces, I want there to be a fish bowl with a goldfish in it. Here's an idea. Why don't we put piranhas in the bowls... With the goldfish. Massacre. The no. water turns red, and plus the guests get to see a show. No, no, I don't want to see any blood at my wedding. <sighs> I'm going to have to change the cake then. Oh, you guys. This is going to be so awesome. No, I know nothing about wedding planning. I tried to do some research once. Mose and I rented a movie about a Latina wedding planner with an enormous can. The movie was not so good, but McConaughey was great. <laughs> As usual. Hey. I don't know. What do you think about that last line there? Well, I'm not a fan of Matthew McConaughey, especially <laughs> after he took that great role in Traffic Thunder from Owen Wilson. But in uh, any case, uh, yeah, nothing in there that I would put into the episode. So good choices in the editing booth. I don't know. I, a little funny bit of business there, I guess, where Dwight, you know, talks about how great Matthew McConaughey was. And you can see Moe's in the background going, you know, giving the eh. Hand gesture. (laughs) And Dwight turns around. Hey! I don't know. But uh, a Latina wedding planner with an enormous can. Ah, Dwight. God bless you. I'm a director. Which on a film set is the highest title there is. Do you know anything about film? I know everything about film. I've seen over 240 of them. Congratulations. All right, well, Kevin, when uh, part of your debauchery in Vegas was going to see the new holiday film Four Christmases, and I got to say that the ads they played on TV, the trailers, were absolutely so horrendous that I thought this was definitely going to be a terrible, terrible film and did not want anything to do with it. Uh, However, uh, our old host, Ian Castleberry, and yourself both said that you love this film, so... What am I missing? What is not in those trailers that uh, is going to get me to see this film? 
Well, besides great Vince Vaughn dialogue and John Favreau is a, a hilarious supporting role, uh, one of the reasons we want to talk about this movie is because it does feature one of our office co-stars, Brian Baumgartner, in a small role. And to summarize everything you need to know about Brian's role in the film, I've penned this little ditty. <laughs> For Christmases features office star Brian. It's a different role than Kevin, of that I am not lying. Fans love Brian B. They want to kiss him, but be sure to arrive early. Blink and you'll miss him. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> yeah, if, you, if, you're, if you're thinking you're going to go and see that great Brian Baumgartner role, uh, you probably want to save this one for uh, video because he's got about a two-minute role in the beginning of the movie. Uh, what does he does he play? Just some uh, guy at the airport, or what's the deal? Co worker of Vince Vaughn, oh, okay. you know. Oh, we, here's what we do. Blah blah blah. So you can just walk in, walk out. But uh, <laughs> well, that's our tenuous office connection. But really, I mean, like I said, I thought those trailers looked horrible. I mean, what what is great about this film? That like I said, you said some Vince Vaughn stuff. But what else? What am I missing here, Kevin? What what is this film about, basically? It's well. It's, it's about a couple, uh, Reese Witherspoon and Vince Vaughn. They're unmarried. Uh, they have two divorced parents each, and normally they skate out of town for the holidays because they want to have to deal with their weird families. But they get trapped at the airport because of heavy fog in San Francisco, and so what they end up having to do is four Christmases in one day with the crazy uh, families here, and each family is crazier than the next, and thus the hilarity ensues. Uh, you know, good roles for both of these lead actors, uh, very effective, and like I said, really good supporting performance by John Favreau, who steals the show so is in every more, scene that he's in. I mean, is there more to this film than just nut shots and people falling off roofs? Yes, and there's a, also a bouncy house, which is very funny, and uh, chicken wings. So, it, <laughs> but yeah, that's about the size of it. Uh, you know, this is not your cutting-edge comedy by any stretch, but... Uh, it's certainly a step up from Vince Vaughn's last holiday film, Fred Claus, which was schizophrenic in its plot and tone. Man, so let me ask you this question. Then. What the hell? Uh, last time I saw Favreau, I guess, he sure was kind of fat and stuff. What? Uh, he looks like he's uh, kind of a roided-up, uh, ripped guy now. What's going on with that? I, apparently making Iron Man has caused him to uh, turn into an Iron Man because he is ripped. Oh, uh, it's, it's just freakishly strange, but uh, <laughs> very enjoyable in the movie. Yeah, all right. Well, let's uh, move on to our next little bit of movie news. Now, Kevin, we've been talking about for a while that John Krasinski, uh, his directorial debut is going to be his own adaptation of the late David Foster Wallace's Brief Interviews with Hideous Men. Co-starring with Krasinski in the film is Julianne Nicholson, Timothy Hutton, Dominic Cooper, Christopher Maloney from Law & Order SVU, and, of course, Rashida Jones. It was uh, it's set to re-release sometime in 2009. Now, none of that is new. What is new this last week is that Brief uh, was chosen as one of the 16 official entries in the 2009 Sundance Film Festival in the Dramatic Competition category, and it was selected from uh, over 1,000 submissions. So nicely done there, John Krasinski. Uh, the buzz at Sundance can only help this film spread to a wider audience, and here's hoping that we'll actually get to see what John can do on the big screen. No offense to fans of period football flicks or cheesy rom-coms. So, looking forward to that one. Uh, any messages? Yeah, just a fact. Oh, and this is from corporate. How many times have I told you that there's a special filing cabinet for things from corporate? Yeah. Oh, the waste paper basket. <laughs> 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 
Oh, I didn't uh, want to get it. You put it in the garbage can that was a special filing cabinet. Yeah, uh, that was a joke. All right, Kevin. Well, um, you know, a lot of the stuff that we've been posting on the website, uh, deleted scenes, the episodes, the webisodes, whatever, are coming from Hulu.com, and I'm a big fan of the service. I know you're a big fan of Hulu as well. Who is not a big fan of Hulu? Well, anyone that does not live in the United States, uh, including Canadians and anyone else in the world that does not have a U.S. IP address. Well, uh, this week I found, because of some complaints, I did a little research and saw on dig.com this week that they had some information on how people from outside the U.S. could access Hulu.com. Basically, if you go to, that's what she said, uh, the blog page, TWSSpodcast.com, you can get the link to the full article there. And essentially what it does is uh, you'd be required to download a program that masks your IP address. And the way that it works right now is Hulu, if they cannot determine your address, they assume that you're a United States citizen and allow you to view the clips and the footage. So I already had two comments from people, one in uh, Australia and one in Germany, praising us for offering this information because they have been able to access the Hulu.com stuff. So if that does apply to you, if you're interested in that, come on over to the webpage and get more information. Well, that's what she said, changing lives once again. Exactly. Well, in other news bits, we did mention, of course, a while ago that NBC um, has been typing this Super Bowl episode of The Office. Well, this week they've officially confirmed that The Office will indeed air a special one-hour episode immediately following the Super Bowl on February 1st. Originally, The Office spinoff was supposed to fill that second half-hour slot, and then when that show disappeared, the forthcoming Amy Poehler show was supposed to find that home. Alas, with both shows missing in action, it's up to The Office to fill the hour. Details of the plot are available online if you're so inclined. Uh, we won't spoil it here, but I will say it sounds like it should be a good episode. Yeah, I was uh, I was in my spoiler-free world kind of predicting and speculating on what was going to happen, and, and you and a few other people said, uh, dummy, it's already out there, what happened? So <laughs> I just plugged my ears and merrily went on my way. I don't, I don't want to know. So we'll see. Uh, we'll get into it more towards February, actually. Um, all right, well, Pregnancy Magazine had an interview in this month's issue, which, I mean, any tenuous connection, apparently, to, to Hollywood or something, I don't know. This seems really weird to me. But uh, they had an interview in this week's episode with everyone's favorite office-related psycho, Jan Levinson. Yep, it's a magazine interview interviewing a fictional character in character about her fictional pregnancy, which has been over for quite some time now. Um, from the article, one of the questions in there said, will you go back to work after the baby's born? And Jan's response is, I will always work in some capacity, even watching Oprah in the afternoon is work, because I'm working on me, and my work ethic is strong. I am ultimately a great boss, and I'm sure I'll be a great boss to my child. Um, the most interesting slash disturbing thing about this was the cover, which is a recreation of the infamous, or famous, depending on your point of view, Janet Jackson Rolling Stone cover, from 1993. And Kevin, what man wouldn't dream of being Melora Hardin's hand bra? I've dreamt about it, i got to say. <laughs> yeah, that was a pretty funny article. It's weird, the in-character thing there, but uh, any way to promote the show and, of course, Melora Hardin herself. So, anyway, if you can't get enough of our brilliant insights, you can follow Matt and me on Twitter, twitter.com 
twitter.com slash summermet or twitter.com slash Kevin Crossman. As we've noted before, this is, these are personal accounts, not dedicated. That's what she said feeds. But if you want to learn more about what we're doing and maybe when we're recording the show and so forth, go ahead and follow us if you're so inclined. And I'll note on this that I'm also using my Twitter feed on my Facebook profile, so if anybody wants to friend me. <laughs> I'll poke you, all right. Also, we posted this last week, but if you have not heard, uh, you can now download podcasts over the air with the iPhone and iPod Touch firmware version 2.2. So you can head on over to TWSSpodcast.com to read Kevin's step-by-step walkthrough on how to download That's What She Said from anywhere in the world. Uh, moving to cast blogs, Jenna Fisher had a uh, very interesting update about the episode Frame Toby. She, she wrote, trust me, I'm very excited to be back in the office. The scene at the end where Jim is showing me the house was so much fun to shoot. The clown painting on the wall made me laugh every time. John was being so funny about not being able to take it down. I hope they put that on the outtakes for this season. We were laughing so hard we cried. And at the end, I improvised the line, what about the clown? Then, if you watch carefully, John buries his head into my neck when he says, yeah, I can't do anything about that. It was because he was laughing so hard. You can see me start to break right at the end, too, which is why I start to smoosh my face into his shoulder. Any mention of that clown painting made us break up. Well, apparently so. at least two people laughed at Frame Toby. Rimshot, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, I, I liked it. That's kind of interesting, I guess, to see that uh, that, that was improvised, because that was a pretty good line. It was a good line. Uh, moving on, we have an update for Meredith's Saxony Electric City blog, and this time she's talking about younger men. She writes, one of the reasons men find me so attractive is because of my experience. The art of lovemaking is like any skill set. The more you do it, the better you get. And honey, let me tell you, I'm the best. But these young guys, they don't know what they're doing half the time. They can't handle a woman like me. I've got powerful needs, and I can't have you all getting all squeamish from performance anxiety when it's business time. <laughs> Fortunately, I'm an excellent at playing teacher. I show them a few tricks, give them some homework, and then they have to demonstrate their newfound abilities on me. Nothing gives me as much satisfaction as ed- educating America's youth. Oh, good Lord. That whole thing is scarier and scarier every week. <laughs> uh, I wonder, is that are, are, are we supposed to take those things as being like in continuity? Is that like canon now, whatever she says in there, or is it just... Kate Flannery kind of doing whatever. I, I, it is canon because a lot of times they do reference things that are happening in the episode, especially in the, a lot of the Holly Michael stuff was referenced, in, you know, each week. Well, that that is true. Okay, next new episode, uh, and this is of course the Christmas episode. And despite what I sort of thought at the beginning of the year, it is not an hour-long episode. It's just a regular old half-hour episode. Uh, Moroccan Christmas. Apparently, Benihana Christmas has set a precedent. I guess. Um, a Christmas party in Morocco. Phyllis's Moroccan-themed holiday party goes up in flames when Meredith's hair catches on fire, and Michael's forced to deal with the accident. Meanwhile, Dwight corners the market on the hottest toy of the Christmas season. So, interesting enough that I guess is this, this is going to be the episode where Phyllis loses control of the party planning committee, apparently? It would sure seem to be setting that up, wouldn't it? <laughs> I, 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 I'm just looking at this plot like Christmas in Morocco. It's um, kind of oxymoronic or something, isn't it? I mean, well, yes, as an Islamic country, uh, that would not exactly be the best place to have Christmas. 
Ah, well, Phyllis, you crazy old bird. You had your run with, uh, <laughs> you had one good, uh, one good party there and goodbye, Toby. And I guess it's time to, uh, time to move on. There are certain things a boss does not share with his employees. His salary, his bed, and I am not going to tell them that I'll be reading their emails. I got to erase a lot of stuff. Just so you know, if you have any sensitive emails, they need to be deleted immediately. I know. A lot of stuff. All right, uh, this comes from Greta via email, and it's in regards to, we talked about a few weeks ago, Melora Hardin on Broadway, and she says, After hearing about Melora Hardin's plea to sell out tickets to Chicago on the That's What She Said podcast earlier last week, I thought you might chuckle at the message I just got today about travel deals. Apparently, Chicago tickets on Broadway have been seriously marked down. Maybe the release of Melora's inner diva backfired, or she just is no good on Broadway. Or maybe it's just the floundering economy. But according to this website, some tickets are even less than half price now. So I don't know what the. <laughs> I have no Ouch. idea what to say about that, but. Ouch, ouch, ouch. Well, we got some great comments on the last episode of That's What She Said, number 56, on about Frame Toby. Gazoo wrote Regarding your comment about how it would have been better to have Michael trying to ditch the camera when he went to buy the weed, you failed to mention to me the funniest moment of the show, Dwight's fruitless gesture of closing the door on the camera crew. All right, Brian had this to say. Your dislike of the character of Toby has made any opinion of this episode invalid and void. Your podcast has gone downhill for a while, and your points dislike of that character of Toby has crept in so much that you aren't able to objectively review the show anymore. In fact, Brian tells us we have lost a subscriber. Yeah, I thought that was kind of funny, the, the response that you put on the blog page, because you, you, know, you, you pointed out that you, you did like the episode Frame Toby, and it, I mentioned, of course, is that I, I have liked other episodes that feature Toby, just not this one, and I don't know. I don't personally don't think that the fact that I don't like a character means I can't be objective about reviewing the show, because as I noted... Even though I hate Toby, I did like Goodbye Toby. So, well, see, this is the thing, Kevin, and I, I don't really want to dwell on this because you know everyone's entitled to their opinion, and I appreciate that Brian is listening to the show. And if he doesn't like the show anymore, then you know, uh, what can I say? You know, you, we all have short lives, and you got to do what you got to do. Uh, my point of view, my response to that basically is that, you know, you and I kind of pretend that we hate Toby maybe more than we do. I don't think that it's just, you know, it's played up for comedy a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing is, he's obviously meant to be hated in the mm-hmm. show. I mean, we're meant. Michael's point of view obviously is the dominant point of view in the show, and so we're meant to kind of feel that way. And and it's not like he's sort of an un you know undeserving guy. He acts like he does today and like last week. You know, the little fake punching and uh, you know you don't see <laughs> and all that stuff. I mean, come on, he deserves ridicule. Uh, he he isn't always painted as a sympathetic character, that's for sure. And the real truth of the matter is that I you know I, I I don't know if people understand this, but there is no such thing. There's no such thing as an objective review. Every review, every criticism is inherently subjective because it's that person's point of view. I mean, I, whatever. I mean, that's you know where I'm coming from. That I think Toby is a wimp, and I enjoy seeing him have problems. So. What can I say? You know where I stand. If it's not you, that's not you, but whatever. Well, I would say that I did appreciate the outpouring of support for some of our other podcast listeners. 
Well, moving on, uh, Kim wrote in, I thought I would somehow enjoy the episode after listening to the podcast, but my opinion on it hasn't changed. If anything, I now wish the episode was completely different. I liked Kevin's idea of having Michael find out about Toby at the end of the show. The entire first scene would have worked for me at the end. I probably would have laughed myself to sleep that night if the episode had ended with Michael screaming, No! Yeah, you uh, you should uh, get your spec script up and ready to go, Kevin. <laughs> Submit that right away. All right, well, G had this to say. Just wanted to let you guys know, if no one else has, the writers were close to a real street with Jim's address near the quarry. Linden Drive is in Clark Summit right near Scranton. Yeah, that's Linden with L-Y-N-D-E-N. And, of course, when I did my Google search, I did Linden with L-I-N. So that's why I guess I wasn't doing such a wonderful job on my uh, research. So <laughs> kudos to G for doing the research for us. All right, and this comes from, uh, these are comments on the producer's cut of Frame Toby. Uh, David Bishop had this to say, I really like seeing Pam stand up for herself regarding the microwave in the extended cut. I thought it was too big a moment to be relegated to the deleted scenes. There's even that moment when she's talking about how much life experience she's accumulated in New York in just a short time compared to Scranton, which is pretty important to the Jim and Pam plotline if Pam feels that way. And teacher Matt wrote in about the producer's cut. Now it's longer, and it's still horrible. Ouch. <laughs> well, i got to disagree, but hey, like I said, each their own. All right. Uh, on Commenting on this week's episode, The Surplus, Nikhil said, What a great episode. I like that they finally made Oscar have more of a role, and that they finally added some tension to the otherwise skyrockets in flight, afternoon delight, wubby-dubby jam front. Pam kind of had some sass this week, throwing away the tiramisu, cold as ice. Where was this Pam during Frame Toby? Uh, this was kind of like a do-over of the healthcare episode in Season 1. You can see the evolution of the show since then as it has developed its own voice and tone. Season 1, healthcare was funny, but quite painful. Most especially because of Steve's hair plugs, eh, Kevin? Way too Office UK-ish. Well, I, I gotta say that, you know, Nikhil obviously liked this episode more than I did, but I... I don't know where he's getting this, that he's glad they finally threw some tension in there. Uh, the whole Jim and Pam relationship has been nothing but tension this whole entire season so far. Yeah, and I think that she had plenty of sass last week in uh, Fred Toby, so yeah, I don't quite get that either. Um, well, Chad uh, commented on Nikhil's comment, I have to disagree with Nikhil. I've seen quite the opposite of the evolution on this show. The show's tone of voice was never more on point than it was in season two. The office can still be funny and poignant, but now, uh, more than ever, it does feel more like a typical NBC sitcom more than a mockumentary. The characters were written much more consistently in season two, which also leads it to having a better voice back then. Not for one second did I believe Jenna was Pam Beasley tonight. Also, the whole wedding plotline, while funny, was just absurd. Look, everyone, Andy stepping in poo again, and it was in the kitchen this time. <laughs> I will take the plausible comedy in healthcare over this episode any day. Well, I gotta admit that I did enjoy healthcare, and I did enjoy a lot of this episode. I didn't enjoy that same stuff that he is talking about there either. So, uh, <laughs> agree with you on that one, Chad. Now, that was one of the points I was bringing up when we talked about this. Nikhil was obviously glad to see Pam being sassy. Uh, Chad was not obviously thinking that this isn't the same character. He's saying this is. Jenna Fisher and not Pam Beasley in this role this week. And we had a few other comments that were sort of 
like that. But Mac disagreed. He said, I would disagree with many in saying that Jenna took Pam out of character. I enjoyed this more assertive Pam, and the little jam conflict rocked more than anything else. Jim's talking head after the threat was priceless. By the way, am I the only one who noticed Pam said those three little words right before she threatened Jim? Uh, is that the first time she's ever said it? And I'll say no, that's not the first time, because I, I commented on that earlier in the season, but they have said it several times since then. Um, I do just want to say, though, one one thing in there, Kevin, we didn't talk about this, but I agree. Uh, John Krasinski has some really wonderful physical acting where he does that, like, that little shiver yes. <laughs> in the talking yes. head, and we couldn't really convey that over the podcast, of course, but um, that was some great stuff, I agree. Yeah, no, I, I think so, too. And I, I think that the whole point is, is that Jenna Fisher is taking Pam in a different direction. There's no doubt about that. I guess the question is whether you think that a character should never evolve. And then if you buy the premise that they can evolve, whether you like the evolution or don't like the evolution. So <laughs> and there's, fair, there's fair points on both sides. Yeah, that's the point, I guess, for me, is that I understand that the character is evolving. Season 3 was all about that arc of her evolution, and Season 4, more so Season 5, of course, the whole New York thing. Um, I'm just not sure I like this new character, I guess, is what I'm some, where I'm coming from. She seems just really confrontational ever since she's been back from New York, so I would like to see her fit back into the office a little bit more, uh, be a little more sympathetic, I guess. Sure. Well, Karen F. summed it up, I think, pretty well. All in all, I thought this was a B episode. Not terrible, not great. I liked that it focused on the office and not the relationships. That is, after all, what we all watch and love this show for. <laughs> uh, I will say, uh, with Karen F.'s comment, I agree with that, but I think that for a lot of people, the relationships are the show, and I think that that's the, the corner that the writers and everyone else has painted themselves into by coupling up everybody and maybe by reducing the um, plot points with these couples, maybe they can get back to the office that at least some of us like a little bit more. No, I think they got to get more involved in the relationships. Now, we got we got a threesome. What about a foursome? Come on, a fivesome. <laughs> Let's get, you know, everyone, Creed, Kevin, Oscar even, in love with Pam or yeah. whatever, is there you any, know. Is there any... Uh, Office fan erotica out there? I haven't, I haven't I gone looking for it. Don't even ask. I'm sure there is. I don't even want to know. I, I have send, no send, idea. Send us a link if there is. No, don't. Don't send it to us, honestly. <laughs> All right. Well, that's about going to do it for us this week. Join us in about a week for episode 58, Moroccan Christmas. Uh, if the van is Moroccan, don't come a knocking, they say. <laughs> uh, please send any comments or constructive compliments to podcast at gmail.com and visit the show blog page at TWSSPodcast.com If you have a chance, please leave positive feedback on iTunes and spread the word in the various The Office related forums. Every little bit helps. Music for this episode is provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. Check it out at music.podshow.com Remember to head on over to NBC.com slash The Office during the week for additional deleted scenes, interviews, episode recaps, cast blogs, and more. And for Kevin Crossman, I am Matt Summer, and we are out of here.
Hey, hey, yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah, uh. yeah. <laughs> oh, don't take it away. <laughs> Is that hot or what?